Well, thanks to DJ and to the worship team for reminding us that it is not us, but Christ through us. So wonderful to sing those hymns and great to have Pastor Paul leading us through the liturgy. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. If you're new to the Bible, uh, there's a blue Bible, blue pew Bible right in the slot in your pew. And you can take that. And Matthew is the first first book in the New Testament. And I want to pick up in Matthew chapter 21. As Pastor Paul said, this is historically known as Palm Sunday. And Matthew 21 gives us uh, the account, one of the accounts in the Gospels of that first Palm Sunday. I'm going to read verses 1 all the way down to verse 17. Matthew 21 beginning in verse 1, and this is God's very word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, You shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you 
have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we we ask that you would remind us of your adopting love, that you would shower your blessings upon us, and that we in turn then would be grateful to you and that we would praise you for your love. We pray that this morning, even as you have, we pray you continue to show us Christ, that we would look upon Christ so that we would love Him and know Him and obey Him and follow Him. Fill us with Your Spirit, Heavenly Father. Do so so that the world may know not only that You sent Your Son, but that You have sent us to bear witness to the Son in this world. We pray for the witness of this church, for Calvary Grace Church. We thank You that You have raised this church up. We pray that it would continue to have a gospel witness in this city, that it would be faithful and true. Lord, this morning I pray especially for the children, even as we have read the account from Matthew 21. We we pray for the children in this church. We thank you for Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and many volunteers who are handing on the Word of God to our children. We thank you especially for parents who are being diligent to hand on the Word of God to to teach their children, to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so we pray for the children in this church, that they would not see this merely as the faith of their parents, but they themselves would turn from their sins and they would believe in Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy of all praise. Lord, we do pray for those who are sick, ill with things that are maybe of a passing illness or things that are are of a constant illness, illnesses of age, illnesses of youth. Lord, we just pray that you would meet the needs of those who are weakened by their infirmities. We do rejoice, Lord, at the answer to prayer for Katie Arnholtz and the opportunity that she can have for transplant surgery. We pray that you would protect her leading up to that surgery. We pray that she would be filled with hope. We pray for the doctors as they prepare for that work. And we do ask, Lord, that there would just be a wonderful result and that Katie would be restored to greater health even through all of this. Lord, we thank you for the witness of our church, but also for the witness of many churches across this land. We ask that you would revive the church in Canada. We pray that we would no longer rely on the arm of flesh, but we would look to you and your everlasting arms and the power of your bared arm to convert people in a moment. And we pray that this city and this province and this nation would once again, or even in a new way, be a place that calls upon the name of the Lord. Lord, you're able to do that. Forgive us for our unbelief. Increase our faith. And even now, on this Palm Sunday, as we 
think about your word. We pray that your word would come to us with power in a way that, that confronts us and comforts us. We pray that you would come and meet us even by your Spirit so that the Spirit of Christ would lift our eyes to gaze upon him. Help us to do this, Heavenly Father, now, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many events in the life of Jesus that you can learn about. You, you can learn the stories. You, you can learn the stories about his birth and about his miracles and about the parables. And you can learn the story and the accounts of his death and then his resurrection, his teaching and the way that he was seen by so many people when he rose from the dead and taught amongst them and how then he ascended into heaven. And you can hear all of these stories. But we need to remember that any time we are reading about the life of Christ, everything about his life has a specific meaning. Jesus didn't do anything that was meaningless. There was no throwaway actions, no throwaway words. Everything had a purpose. And so, everything in the life of Jesus is meant to be interpreted. It's meant to be interpreted. So on Palm Sunday, we don't merely have the arrival of Jesus on a donkey colt in Jerusalem and the children waving palm branches and, you know, that's all it is. No, no. The gospel writers want us to understand the meaning of it all. They give us a definitive interpretation. And you don't have to guess at what it means because the gospel writers, and in this case, Jesus' disciple Matthew, they tell us. And so this morning, we are going to be confronted with the true Christ. Not merely the Christ, the, the Jesus of a mere story, something akin to a myth. But the true Christ in how his person and work was to be interpreted. And the result, friends, is that you and me will be disrupted by that encounter. And this is speaking to us now as the great disruption in our world and in all that we do even at the core of our very souls, even our own souls worship, we are going to be disrupted. So we begin in Matthew 21, as you read, with a very little prophecy. You maybe missed it even when we were reading it. It's a little prediction, and, and you can almost miss it. Jesus predicts that in the village there is going to be a female donkey tied up there with their young colt tied right there beside her. And, and it's a little thing, but it's, it's maybe like predicting that you know, you're going to find your preferred parking spot 
at church when you're running 15 minutes late, and there it is. I mean, if that happened, you'd be like, oh, wow, it's a miracle. Spot opened up. It's, it's not a big prophecy, but Jesus said it would happen, and surprise, surprise, the Jenny, that's not the girl's name, that's what you call a female donkey. Uh, you're not up on your donkey uh, donkey uh, knowledge, I guess. The Jenny, she's there with this unbroken colt beside her. It's not major, but it's the first little disruption you find in this, this account in Matthew 21. The second little disruption is that Jesus has the audacity to think that his disciples can just go and confiscate this donkey colt and its mother. They can just go take it. Now, he doesn't tell them to steal it. It's interesting. He's going to go get it, but they're not going to steal it. He tells them to give a message that authorizes them to take it. So what did Jesus tell them? He said, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Well, Jesus isn't giving some sort of a pseudo-religious reason for their thieving. He's just not trying to cover over their theft. He's saying something about himself. Jesus knows he is Lord. He is the Lord. And his lordship entitles him to everything. Right now, you are entitled, or he is, he is entitled to own even you. He is entitled to that. And if you are not giving yourself to him, then you are shaking your fist at the one who is entitled to your very soul. He is entitled to everything. J. Gresham Machen, the Westminster scholar, he, he observed that one of the reasons why the early Christians instinctually confessed Jesus as Lord is because that's how Jesus spoke about himself. They're, they're just imitating Jesus. That's how he spoke. He refers to himself as the Lord. So in this little confiscation, it's not Caesar needs it. It's not Herod needs it. It is the Lord who needs it. Jesus is Lord. That's, that's some of the, these initial little disruptions, and they're just going to keep escalating as we go along. Jesus is so confident in his lordship that all he has to do is say so, and it will happen. The colt's owner, he, he says, the guy's going to send it at once. So Jesus, he's disrupting these two disciples and the donkey owner. Their little worlds are interrupted. But what did they do? They obeyed at once because the Lord needs them. You know, the reformer John Calvin, he had this motto. And his motto said, My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Promptly 
and sincerely. Isn't that what every parent wants their kids to, to do when they tell them to do stuff? I want you to respond promptly and sincerely. That's the way. That's how we ought to be towards the Lord. And if you've been disrupted by the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that is then your response. That's what these disciples' response. That's what the, the cult owner's response. We don't even know who that is. But they responded promptly and sincerely. You know, and, and so when you're going to obey, you, you send it. It's full send. Go, do it. But these disruptions then, they escalate. They just start escalating, get, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We see that Jesus and this donkey colt, spe- there's a specific meaning to it all. So verse 5, you see it there in your Bible. You see it's indented, it's set off. It's a quotation. It's a quotation from the first part of Isaiah 62, and the rest of it is Zechariah 9.9. And even Zechariah is kind of quoting from Isaiah 62.11. So you just have these two passages in mind. You can turn to Isaiah 62 to begin with. Isaiah 62, if you see it there in Isaiah 62, God's people in Jerusalem, they are told in Isaiah 62 that God would marry his people. He's going to marry his people and he's going to rejoice over them. Saying, like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So it's a picture in Isaiah 62 of a big wedding ceremony. And then Isaiah says in Isaiah 62, 11, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. The daughter of Zion is the bride. So then the prophet Zechariah, he quotes from Isaiah's wedding announcement. So if you kind of go right to, uh, to the book of Zechariah, that little prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, Isaiah's wedding announcement is imported into Zechariah's quotation. And Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, as he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's where we get the quotation of Matthew 21. But Zechariah, he's repeating this expectation that God would have this glorious marriage with his bride in a beautiful wedding. But it's not any old wedding, it's a royal wedding. It is the wedding of the king. You know, spring's coming, and, and when spring comes, it's wedding season, right? You know, we, it's, you know, people will be without COVID now, There'll be even more weddings, I think. And weddings are wonderful. Weddings are fun. But you know, there is that kind of unspoken secret that everybody who's invited to a wedding thinks about. And you know what it is? Weddings are really disruptive. You know, everybody's thinking about, how am I going to juggle my schedule so I'm going to get to this wedding? 
You know, I've got dates, I've got driving, I've got dressing up, I've got all this stuff I've got to do. You know, and they want me to be at the wedding. I'm like, okay, but I've got all these other things. Of course, it's not, you know, well, it's disruptive for the singles, too, because then they're, they go home married. Uh, so it's disruptive for them, too. But, but imagine a wedding. Talk about the dist- disruption of weddings. Think of a wedding with a donkey. I mean, it's pretty disruptive to your little world, I think. Zechariah says in this quotation in, in Matthew 21, Zechariah says that this king would come humbly. He's coming humbly. He's mounted on the donkey colt. And, you know, we automatically, we can pick that up. We can think, yeah, a donkey colt, that's pretty lowly. It's a lowly way to show up to a wedding. Um, you know, it's, it's not really rolling up in a Lambo. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not having, you know, renting that drop-top Cadillac. So, yeah, we know that the donkey symbolizes humility. But it means something else. The donkey colt would actually be ridden by the kings of Israel at certain times, specifically in times of peace. What do you ride in a time of war? Well, you get on the war horse. But if in a time of peace, they would ride then the donkey. Judges 5.10, 1 Kings 1.33. So the king of Zion, this anticipated king, he's going to come humbly, and the point is, he's bringing peace. And that's what the rest of Zechariah chapter 9 talks about. He even says how the war horse would be cut off from Jerusalem. And that the king in Zechariah 9 would speak peace to the nations. That's what's happening. That's what this Messiah is doing. And so here is then this Messiah king coming with great humility. He's got this unbroken donkey. I mean... My boys are trying to be rodeo cowboys, and the thought of an unbroken donkey, you would have a rodeo if anybody else was riding it. But Jesus can ride an unbroken colt because he has absolute control over all of creation because he is Lord. D.A. Carson said, In the midst, then, of this excited crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls, his na- who controls all nature. So we need to see then that when Matthew interprets Jesus getting on the donkey colt and riding into Jerusalem, he's bringing together two ideas at once. There's two ideas. The first idea is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You know it. He's the King coming in humility, but He is coming as the Son of David. And you know it from all of your Christmas readings in Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end, Isaiah 9-7. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Who's who's that referring to? Unto us a son is given. A child is given. Unto us a, uh, a son is born. And that's that Christmas time 
birth prophecy. That's the first thing, is he's the prince of peace. But the second idea, the second idea that Matthew is helping us to bring together is that Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. He is the God who promised to marry his people and to forsake them no more, as he said in Isaiah 62. And so what we come away with then is this much fuller, richer picture of what Jesus' triumphal entry, what it really meant. Because it wasn't merely that Jesus was humble so that we ought to be humble too. And that's true. He was humble. He is meek. And we ought to be humble and meek. He is our model. He is our example. That's all true. But more than that, Jesus was disrupting the whole world. The entire world, the Prince of Peace, was breaking in to His world to come for His bride. And nobody was going to stop Him. Nobody was going to stop Him. He is focused. He's coming to get His bride. And so then this explains then why the crowds, they, they responded to this great disruption in such strange ways. You see it, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Well, why did they do that? Like, what, what, what's going on? Why, why do that? Well, that's how the people of Israel responded in ancient days to the king Jehu, one of Israel's kings. He was anointed to be the king of Israel, but it was done in a really hasty manner. It was, it was kind of in a, this really panicked kind of way. There was no time to plan a parade for Jehu. There were no mother-in-laws there planning for months in advance to make sure everything's you know, all in its place, right? Like when you have a wedding. No, this was totally thrown together. And, and like Jehu in 1 Kings 9, you know, it says, In haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king! Well, that's what the crowd was doing for Jesus. They were saying, Jesus is king! The Messiah is here! And yet, of course, days later, the crowds would be saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. How fickle is the heart of man. How, how changeable we are. How, how angry we can become when we are disrupted. Those that were praising Jesus on Sunday would be angry with raised fists at him on Friday. Nevertheless, into this wild procession, this wedding procession as it were, this triumphal entry, you'd expect people then to get a little carried away as often happens at weddings in any kind of ceremony like this. They're shouting, they're cheering, and what do they cheer? Well, you see it there in verse 9. It's a really important verse. 
They shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, this slogan, this little cheer, comes from one of the most important parts of the whole Bible. Psalm 118. If you want to understand the whole Bible, almost all the roads go through Psalm 118. It's it's one to meditate on even this week. They're shouting from Psalm 118, verse 26. You You can turn there, Psalm 118. They're praising the coming king who is arriving in his wedding procession as the bridegroom who has come to redeem his bride from the captivity of her enemies. These cheers, they're political. They're spiritual. They're very personal. They all go together. And so for the crowds who cheered, as they are chanting and carrying on, The arrival of Jesus was the disruption that they were desperate for. Like they wanted, they wanted this disruption. In other words, they didn't want the status quo anymore. They were weary of the world and all of its oppression. They were tired. They were beat down. But Jesus' arrival meant that the world would be totally disrupted, and so the crowd goes wild. They're so excited at the prospect of this disruption. So, of course, then in Matthew 21, verse 10, it says, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? You know, the triumphal entry of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, it signals something to Jerusalem, but also to you and to me, to the whole world. It signaled that the king cannot be ignored. He cannot be ignored. You can't sideline him. You can't act as if he's not there. You can't act as if he doesn't rule all. You can't act as if his lordship does not impact you. There's no more secret mission. There's no backwater ministry. He can't be dismissed. He can't be sidelined. He must be engaged with. So the response of the whole city was then this deepest, most disruptive question that any human being could ever ask. And it is the question, who is this? Who is this? And there are people in this city who they are refusing to ask that question even even though they know they ought to. They don't want to come near this church because then they would be forced To ask that question, who is this? And they would be disrupted 
by being confronted not only with the question, but the true answer. And so that's the question this morning. Is have, have you asked that question? Who is this? You know, have you undertaken then that quest? You know, from this point, the quest to know Jesus is the only quest that matters for eternity. It's the only one. To know who is this, it is the only purpose you must live for. You must live for that purpose. I just think if Calgary, in all of its stupor and all of its pride, would be stirred up to ask, who is this? And then they would say, or then we would say to them, along with all the crowds, we'd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And even more so now, we would say this is the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, who died, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And then Cowtown would join the new Jerusalem. That's, that's what we would see. Jesus is still disrupting our world two millennia later in the year of our Lord, 2022. Who is this? That's the question that disrupts the entire world. But even further, the triumphal entry as Matthew records it, it includes then an important event in verses 12 through 17 that it's, it's Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Now, it's not merely the disruption then of our world, but it's actually deeper. It's actually the disruption of our worship. Now, just as a, as a timeline note, verses 12 through 17 would have likely taken place on the, after Palm Sunday, on Monday. But Matthew is intentional. He's going to connect the quotation from Psalm 118. He's going to connect it here, and he's, the intention is that we see and read these together. And so that's what we're going to do. Now, as I was thinking and reading about Jesus disrupting the worship of the temple, I was reminded of uh, way long time ago when I was a young guy playing hockey. I used to have a coach that uh, when we, we'd have a bad poor period of play playing hockey he would come into the dressing room and he would kick over the garbage can now sometimes the garbage can was empty sometimes it was full and it certainly got our attention and I I I found out later it was all kind of an act like he wasn't really that mad at us but he's just trying to get us stirred up but that's what Jesus is doing that's what Jesus is doing when he enters into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple and he goes there to get everybody's attention. To get them focused on him. What does he do? Verse 12, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, you know, if you're kind of a sympathetic sort of person, you might think, well, hey, these guys are the victims here. 
You know, why is Jesus disrupting these poor bank tellers and pet dealers? You know, does, does Jesus hate pigeons so much? Like, what's his problem? Of course, that's not the point. But you have to kind of understand what's going on in the temple. The temple had become basically something like a flea market. It's, it's something like a, a religious pawn shop. Or, or worst of all, and I think this is probably most fitting, the temple had become a tourist trap. You know what a tourist trap is. You, you know what happens You know if you go to Banff in the summertime or you go to the Grand Canyon or you go to the Stampede. It's overpriced goods, it's high-pressure sales, and you're kind of a captive audience. That's what was happening at the temple. Now, what had happened in Jerusalem at the temple then was that poor people, they would come there, And they wouldn't own a lamb to sacrifice for their sins. So they had almost nothing. Now the law provided for them in Leviticus 14, and it said you could offer two pigeons as your offering, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. And these were the offerings of then the poorest of the poor people, especially those who had skin diseases like leprosy. But the temple had become a tourist trap. So you think, if you're traveling from northern Galilee, you come to the temple, well, you're not going to turn around because the pigeons are too expensive. You come all that way. So like every tourist trap, you're the pigeon. You're the one that gets plucked. And that's what was happening in God's holy temple. And Jesus, he sees it, And he takes up the mantle of the divine warrior and he purges the house of God. And you can see. You can see why Jesus was so indignant. Why why he was so angry. It's because he had this righteous indignation at the way the poor and the outcast were being preyed upon. They're being exploited. And it made Jesus furious. And he was furious Because they should have known better. They should have known better. And so he reminds them. Look, he says there another quotation in verse 13. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, obviously, the pigeon sellers and the loan sharks, they're stealing from the people, the poorest of the poor. They're literally preventing the worshipers from focusing on God and praying to Him. And instead, like every tourist trap, the people are left wondering, why did I pay so much for this? You know, ten bucks for a bottle of water or hundred bucks for a pigeon. But Jesus is saying a lot more in this quotation. He's joining two passages of Scripture again. He's joining Isaiah 56 And Jeremiah 7. And this is really important. You you have to understand, Jesus was a Bible man. And so he's he's taking Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And this, this illustrates, it kind of reveals what Jesus is getting at. Isaiah 56, it speaks, yes, of the temple as a house of prayer. But interesting, it's a house of prayer for foreigners, outsiders. 
And so that even in Isaiah 56, it speaks of the eunuch, the one who couldn't have children, who, who could have no lineage in Israel. Even, even that guy, he would be welcomed into this house of prayer. So the outsiders, the people who had been unclean, they would be welcomed in. That's the Isaiah 56 connection, the house of prayer connection. So it's not just a house of prayer, it's welcoming the outsider and the foreigner. But Jesus also quotes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, where it says in Jeremiah 7, 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And then in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah goes on to tell how the temple would be destroyed because of Israel's wickedness. And you know what specifically the specific thing is in Jeremiah 7? The specific indictment is that because of idolatry, idols that had been set up, false idols put in the temple, those idols were given the sons and daughters of Israel and they were sacrificed in fire for those false idols. And because of that, God said, I'm going to destroy this temple. That's what Jesus is quoting from when he's referring to the den of robbers. It's not just that they were stealing from the people. It's that they were filled with idolatry and wickedness and exploitive oppression. It's interesting then when you read in a place like Jeremiah 7 of them casting their sons and daughter into the fire and then you consider abortion in our own day, the murder of one's own children. And we think that we're such a nice culture, right? But Jesus then, he is disrupting that kind of worship, that false worship. He's breaking it. He's disrupting it. He's saying enough is enough. No more. That's enough. He will not let this continue. And his actions show the charge of Isaiah 3.15. What do you mean by crushing my people, grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts? He's not going to put up with it. He's not to be trifled with. When did temple worship get shut down in the past prior to Jesus shutting it down here? Well, you know, when, when, G, when Jerusalem was besieged by Babylon and Babylon, they destroyed the temple. And Jesus, though, he has the audacity to come in and shut it down. He shuts down the worship of the temple. He clears everybody out. And I'll tell you what, if Jesus will do that, he will definitely disrupt your false worship. He will definitely disrupt your little idolatries and my little idolatries. And he will flip the tables on you. But it's not just that. It's not just Jesus coming to beat you up, because he's not. 
He's confronting you for a purpose. And what's that purpose? It's to disrupt the worship and then in this new way. Because what happened next? Look at verse 14 of Matthew 21. It is so important for everybody to see this. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. The blind and the lame. Do you see then what his disruption did? It made it possible for the poor and the lame to enter the temple just as they were. Just as they were. They had no sacrifice to bring. They had no pigeon to buy. They came only with their poverty and their infirmity. That's all. It's like the hymn says, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. But that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. And what did Jesus do when the poor and the lame came to him in the temple? He healed them. He healed them. No mediation, no go-between, no middlemen, no ritual, no offering. They just came to Jesus and he healed them. Full stop. Praise God for this kind of disruption. Because when you are broken, when you are broken, then a disruption to your brokenness brings healing. Some of you are desperate to have your brokenness disrupted and to be healed. Jesus healed them. He healed them. Knowing even that by Friday He would die on the cross and shed His own blood for their sins. But there was no need anymore for a go-between. They could have direct access to Him. But the disruption didn't work that way for others. Verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were not broken. They were indignant. They weren't indignant about pilgrims getting scammed. They weren't indignant about the poor and the lame being shut out. No, they were indignant about Jesus setting himself up in the temple like he's God. Receiving the praise of the people. They were indignant. Because in their minds, that's not how worship works. And so then they said to him, verse 16, 
Do you hear what these are saying? Of course, these chief priests and scribes, they're referring to those praises, to, to the hosannas. Hosanna, which means, oh, save us. Oh, save us, son of David. Oh, save us, Lord. It's the Psalm 118. Praise him, the halal hymn. The chief priests and the, and the scribes, they knew the Bible. They recognized that Psalm 118 sung to Jesus indicated not only that he was the Messiah, the son of David, but that he was the object of worship. And those religious leaders knew that only God could be that object. So they were indignant. They wanted Jesus to shut what they viewed as false praise, shut it down. Jesus, you need to issue a categorical denial. You need to refuse this worship. Do you hear what these are saying, Jesus? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Yes. There's no qualification, there's no denial. He accepts their praise. Their halal psalm to God directed at him. And then he said, Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. He quotes from Psalm 8. He's not talking about nursing babies being able to pray at the prayer meeting. I know some of them are really clever, but they're not that smart. He's saying that this disruption, these praises from the children was prepared from when they were babies. No, from before they were even born. This praise was destined, destined to come from these kids and this praise was destined to come to Jesus. The Lord is in His holy temple. And the children praise. The disciples praise. And if they didn't, as Luke tells us, the very stones would cry out. Because Jesus is Jehovah. All praise, all honor is due to Him the incarnate Son of God. So that's the confrontation. That's the disruption. It's either something you welcome or something that will drive you to damnation. And so I close by just considering these two. The disruption to your world and the disruption to your worship. Because I, I look out and I can see who's here. I know there are people sitting here who are blissfully ignorant about Jesus. Who act, yeah, you're here, so you're kind of humoring somebody. But, but you're carrying on fine without him, you think. 
If that's the case, then my prayer is that Jesus would disrupt your world. You've got to ask yourself, what will it take for God to shake you out of your stupor and cause you to wake up and to praise Him as He's due? You can't ignore the coming of the Son of David. And you will get wrecked until you do. And there are people, (laughs) if you're sailing, you're coasting, you're going to get wrecked until you turn to Christ. I I, I mean, I I pity you. But, But why not turn? Why wait? Turn to Him. Flee to Christ. Embrace the disruption. Because secondly, maybe you're the other kind of person here. You're wounded. You're weak. You're weary. And and maybe you've become, by this point, you've become a bit confused by religion. Maybe you're even confused to this church. There's people who are confused here. And you think that you have to somehow perform the right rituals or make the right sacrifices, or buy the right books. And you actually need a different kind of disruption. You need a disruption that puts all of that aside. You don't need it. And it's a disruption that gives you the wide open invitation to simply come. To come to Christ. You don't have to do stuff. You simply receive Him. You come to Jesus. You come to have your sins forgiven. There's no sacrifices. There's no qualifications. You just come as you are. If you do that, you come and you find healing for your soul in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By His stripes, we are healed through the forgiveness of our sins. As the hymn writer said, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. I pray that this great disruption will confront you and comfort you on this Palm Sunday. Let's pray together. Holy God, our Heavenly Father, we we ask that you would grant to us, Jesus, by your Spirit, interrupt all of our idolatries, disrupt all of our designs, overturn all of our schemes, that we would be, that we would even come broken come broken to the bridegroom that we would forgive that that we would see the forgiveness of Jesus that he would forgive us cleanse us clothe us and that we would turn and be healed and then we would find that it is well with our souls oh lord grant us that we would come we pray this in Jesus name amen